The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I am joined today by my good friend Inez, who's been on this show not once, not twice, but three other times already. So he is here. He's back for in for floor, and he's talking about his win off of Warhammer Fest. Games Workshop came out. They had an amazing 360-person tournament, part of a 14,000-person Warhammer convention. There's tons of episodes uh, elsewhere talking about people who are actually there covering the event. From what I heard, it was epic. It was awesome. And this can probably shed some light on that. And then uh, he took it down. The 360-person, nine-round Super Major, first GW-style event in the UK since GW started hosting events again. Really exciting. And has been up and coming. He's been a longtime member of Team Scotland, one of the top players in the world. And he's here. We're going to get to know Innes. And then ultimately, in part two of this two-part show, we're going to break down his Iron Hands list, which he took to win this tournament. The ins, the outs, how it works, the tactics he used, how he deployed it, how he played the various different matchups. All of that in a nutshell. You can join it and get access on AOW40K.com. That's our website. Check it out. You'll get access to our Discord server where you get access to some amazing community as we enter 10th edition. Tons of content in there. And additionally, part two of this podcast. So anyways, without further ado, in is Wilson. Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back after a few years off. Yeah, I, I, only wanted, I only want stuff that wasn't interesting enough for you to talk about before. That's very disappointing. It wasn't that. It was that I was. I knew you had this like potential within you that you needed to unlock, kind of like an achievement <laughs> code. So you. All right. So it wasn't. It was. Yeah. It just needed to be a bigger super major. That was the problem. It wasn't. That's the, the problem. One seventy wasn't enough. It had to be three hundred plus. If it's not, you know, not shooting for the stars. What are we shooting for? And it's that is entirely fair. No, thank you so much for having me back, Nick. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, man, of course, anytime. So talk to me and tell us about yourself. You know, you've been on the show twice before, and the show used to be have a little bit different in premise where we focused a lot more about the list and how it worked in the first episode. And part two would be a little bit more detailed than that. But I think there's so much more than just the list. I think there's really the player behind it and the journey they come up with that is fascinating and insightful to actually learning about how it works. So talk to me about how you got into the game. Yeah, so... I mean, it feels like a long time ago now. So uh, I got into 40K when I was about 12, so about 14 years ago. Um, and I just kind of played it on and off through like a little bit of high school, got out of it when I was sort of towards the end of high school. And then first year of uni, I was really bored. Uh, I was 17 and couldn't drink in the UK at that point. So I was like, well, I need to do something else with my time. So I got back into Warhammer um, and then kind of a year on and off of doing that, go back, go into like going to tournaments. I kind of got picked up by some of the Team Scotland guys. And they were like, hey, we need new people to actually play the game with. Because this is back when Scotland had about seven people in a cow shed playing 40k and competitively. Um, cow shed much. was a contributing yeah. team member in his. Yeah, well, it was either the cow shed or an Englishman. And like those were the two options. It's not great either way. Um, so I got into playing competitively. So this was seventh edition. Um, start off by doing things just like shamelessly netlisting from uh, Sean Naden's Lictor Shameless, which I played terribly and did not understand how to play, um, to go back right away. And then sort of off the back of that, got into doing the Team Scotland stuff. So very much focused on the ETC at the time. Um, I ended up playing my, coaching my first ETC in 2018 or 2017 and then playing 2018 and 2019. Um, 
and started traveling down to a bunch of the big singles events in England and also abroad. So I did a few in like Amsterdam, um, which I did pretty well at. And that was sort of like my genesis to actually doing pretty well competitively. Um, so I managed to, you know, like go four and one at a few of the bigger English events. I five out in LGT, the one where we played. Um, what a wonderful time that was. 45 advanced deploying white scars models on the line. No seas roll, let's go. That was um, a great game. That was I almost had that one. You did. You got you scammed yourself by like failing a charge that you never fail. You know, sometimes you just uh you fail those charges with GSC happens. Yeah, I hear it doesn't, but uh, that's a different topic. <laughs> um so yeah, it was very much a case of right place, right time, got into competitive 4K, and then throughout the course of like university and then the few years since I've just kept it going. Um, I took over Team Scotland in 2021, so this will be my third year captaining, uh, but this will be the second time we're attending WTC, um, and it's really just been about growing the scene in Scotland throughout that, and then also um, I picked up a, a teammate along the way, Brian Sype, who's an American gentleman who lives in uh, the UK, or lives in Edinburgh, so which is a place in Scotland, uh, and he really pushed me to start doing really well at singles, because um, he won a super major and he was the first person from Scotland to win a super major and he wasn't from Scotland and it was really upsetting. So I was like, well, I need to do better than that. So I went and won a couple. Um, and Brian's been really pushing, like with Team Scotland, uh, really been pushing each other to do better and better, which has come down to the fact that we were, we ended up playing in the semifinals of Warhammer Fest. Um, and then there's a bunch of really other great, awesome players in and around the team that have made doing that push a lot easier because we've got people to test with people to practice with people that care about the singles environment not as much as the team environment but it's always there because it's the best way to get practice when you can't always you know you don't always live together we're not all there are warhouse you get to practice with each other on a daily basis so getting to travel to big events and really practice for that has been a really big driving force uh and the team behind me has been phenomenal for supporting that and pushing me to continually do better and better plus we can't let the english win their own events it's just not okay there's so much to unpack there. All right. So you got into the game when you were younger. You started playing competitively. You went to school. You stayed with the game. And somehow you got involved with the WTC team. And really, your focus of your story, I would say, is more about your involvement with the team. And now you said you're captain of it. Congratulations. I know you, I remember you know, a couple years back when I met you, pre-COVID times, that you were just like a person on the team. So quite the trajectory like you really skyrocketed through i'm a dude who plays warhammer to i am the captain of the team that represents my country yeah uh, it's been a it's been a good process i can't complain yeah what, what is that like like how do you how does someone just do that you know so part of it is so i i played for team scotland or i played with team scotland for three years before i ended up taking the captaincy um so i coached one year played for two years and then there was the COVID years where like i was captain but like it wasn't really a thing um and it just ended up happening that a bunch of the people that would have been you know probably continued the captaincy team so some of the older names you might remember from team scotland like uh in higgins or Birdley, who were like old hats but previous captains just kind of fell out of the game during COVID. um which is one of those things that I don't think gets talked about very much. That there were a bunch of like veteran players who just like realized there was other stuff they could be doing with their time and didn't have that momentum carrying them forward and just kind of moved on. I think I had always kind of like been angling to do it. I had vice captained one year at that point, um, but it then just kind of came about naturally that well, no one else was going to do it. So I just was like, "Well, cool. Somebody's got to do it. It might as well be me." Um, and I'd always been doing like a bunch of community stuff, running events. I ran a podcast in the UK back at the, uh, ran a podcast for Scotland back in the day. Um, it just kind of came with like 
I had been growing up my local scene, and my local scene was turning it to be some of the better players in the, in the Scotland. So it was very natural to push into that role of, okay, I already had five of the eight players on the team in my local area. Now I'm captaining the team as well. It just makes sense. Um, and then obviously the rest of the team put a whole huge amount of trust behind me and said, yeah, we'll back you for that. Um, and it went on from there. Um, it helps that I'm probably the best player in Scotland right now, which is you know, always a nice thing to have in your pocket. Be like, anybody who wants to challenge for captaincy needs to at least be as good at the game in the sense that I'm just perfectly capable of organizing everything. So there needs to be another reason to unseat me and they're not better than me. So, you know, it's it's a nice, easy place to sit there as long as I want it. And somebody's got to challenge it off me right now, which right. isn't really how it works. But, you know, it always feels good when you can do all the organization stuff and, you know, know what you're talking about. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like when you can walk the walk and also keep all your stuff in order and everyone else's stuff in order, like what's wrong? You know, like there's nothing that is a valid captaincy right there as long as you keep the team <laughs> organized and whatnot. So, you know, that's, that's great. In terms, like while I was listening to your story and while I've heard other people talk about you just in the competitive 40 K sphere, one thing always kind of comes to be the word that I hear is kind of associated with it. And I would say that's passion. And you can absolutely hear like when you were younger, you were organizing your local scene and then twice in your story so far, you've mentioned, well, why not me? In terms of your friend Brian coming over and winning your super major in Scotland, and then also who's going to step up and be captain. That is like a type of attitude, I would say, that really helps people separate themselves from someone who goes X and one or X and two, and you know might have all the 40K skills in the world, and really actually win the tournament. And you have plenty of super major wins, captaincy of Scotland at this point. And you carry that attitude. I, I see it in how you've acted about your 40k progression, but I think it translates onto the table. Do you think that's the case, or do you think it's just something different? I think it's absolutely something that I would attribute. So there was kind of a, I'd say, as far as my 40k trajectory goes, there was a point where, sort of, like the very beginning of last year, where I was doing pretty well at events. Like I was winning most of the events in Scotland that I went to, doing pretty well at the English ones. But I had like, you know, an okay LGT. I went four and one of that, lost in the last round. Sure, it was Admet Plains, but like, if you want to be one of the best players, you shouldn't. You should try to win the games, whether they're insurmountable or not. Um, and I kind of was like, well, at this point, I'm putting this much time and effort into it. If there are players out there like Manny, Richard Siegler, yourself, who just win, right? It doesn't really matter what the situation is. The losses are, I would just call them occasional rather than like you know consistent. And I was like, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And then I just made that like, I would almost say mental jump where. I was like, cool, so no more excuses, I'm just going to win games. And it kind of bore out through the play. I obviously had a really graced run where I spent most of 2022 playing Tyranids, which was a pretty good place to be. I rolled from Crusher Stampede directly into the Tyranid Codex, um, which was, you know, I, I don't think I lost very many games with that Codex. I think it would have been difficult to lose a lot of games with that Codex. Um, but then I transitioned that into playing GSC pretty consistently and then recently Iron Hands. Um, it always helps to, you know, be at the top of the meta to be playing the things that are the best right now. But part of that is, you know, dictating what is the best by being the person playing the things that other people think are good and then making it the best. Um, and that's really been a thing that I've been trying to work on is that not having those excuses. Like, I'm a, I'm a good player. I should win games. Um, if I'm going to lose a game, I want it to be because they play better than me, not because I had an excuse. I love that attitude, and that's absolutely the same attitude that I, I speak of, that I know Richard speaks of, and I'm sure you could ask any art War coach or plenty of other top players, like, they want to lose because you are better than them, or rather they want to beat you because I'm better than you, as opposed to blaming dice or letting some external 
nonsense, you know, be the deterministic factor. So we simplify it down to saying like we don't blame the dice or we don't make excuses. What does that look like for you as a player? Like when you're when you are up against that loss, you know, you have to self-evaluate, you have to figure out what you did wrong so you can learn from your mistakes. What what kind of not so much what kind of mistakes do you make unless you see a trend, but like how do you what do you look for in terms of where did this go wrong? So a lot of the time in a loss, it's like, as you said, it's easy to blame dice. And I think that kind of, I want to time it a tiny bit. There comes a point in your 40k career where you can kind of be back to like, yeah, okay, it was the dice on this one. Um, for 99% of people and 99% of games, you can. But sometimes you have that game where you're like, yeah, I, I just tried like, I tried like plan A, B, and C, and they all crap. They all just. Yeah, just sometimes you really like, do. Like, it just happens. Roll, we like, play enough games of 40k that eventually those games happen. It's kind of by partly discounting those and being like, okay, I'm at the point where I can recognize if I got dice scammed, I got dice scammed. Um, I'm comfortable enough in my own play now to be like, you know, if it was a thing, it was a thing. Sometimes you play the semifinals of a tournament and you're Wenger long shot, one shot, solitaire, um, you know, on Overwatch. Um, <laughs> and you're like, it happens, right? Dice scams are always going to be a thing. But a lot of the, the reflection is being honest with whether it was a plan mistake or an execution mistake. Um, and to, to really specify what that is, so like a plan mistake is where you just like took the wrong approach on the game. So I picked the wrong secondaries, played aggressively when I should have played defensively, um, attacked the left flank when I should have attacked the right flank. And then execution mistakes is where I'm like, so I had the right idea, but I target prioritized wrong on this turn, or I shot things out of sequence and it snowballed away from me. And differentiating from those two mistakes has been really helpful for actually identifying what the problem they make are. And I'm generally finding that the games I lose are plan mistakes more than they are execution mistakes nowadays, which is, you know, a nicer place to be. It's nice to know that I'm not screwing up during the game so much because that can be a big thing in, you know, like earlier in my progression as a player, screwing up during the game was, you know, part of playing the game. And I think I've broadly gotten away from that and gotten into sometimes you just misevaluate a game state, whether it's a turn, whether it's a full game. Um, and often when you play armies that are front-loaded in terms of, Execution, so Gene Circult was a really good example for that. I had a really rough time with for a couple of events with Gene Circults because I had a couple of matchups like Necrons when Necrons were at their peak where I would go into it with one idea of how the game would play and I would try it and if it didn't work because, you know, it's a risky game plan or it relies on, you know, rolling fairly average with an army that doesn't really do averages across units, it does it across armies and you find that a thing snowballs away from you and it gets away from you and I didn't know how to recover a plan from that but what that actually means is that my plan going into it shouldn't have been revolving around that unless I didn't think there was a better option. And I should have put more time in to find those better options. And then I did that and I came away from it and I went into my future events after specifically LGT and had a much better time with Gene Circles. Um, and that's really what it is. It's about finding what the mistake is and then how to address it. And a lot of the time it comes down to making sure you have a good plan. And then if that plan isn't a good plan, why are you playing the army? Because, you know, I should be playing the armies that give me the chance to execute on my skill. Right. Now, it's when you break it down, that kind of logic, like these are the different kinds of mistakes, plans, plan mistakes, strategy level, micro, macro level thinking, versus tactical mistakes, which are executional mistakes, you know, like I piled in wrong, I shot the wrong thing. Or, and there's failure points, which is your last thing you kind of talked about, which is like, you can make the plan hit the six-inch charge out of reserve with the CP reroll, that's going to fail, you know, whatever, 35% of the time, whatever the math is. And that's going to suck. That really is going to suck that many times. So maybe come up with a better plan is ultimately, and then play armies, which allow you to come up with a more consistent plan. Is 
essentially the formula you've used to get better over time. Yeah, exactly. Or accept that you're hard capped by that six inch charge rollable, right? Like you can play that. Like that's a completely valid strategy. You will win tournaments making that strategy because a six inch rollable charge is pretty reliable. But the one game you fail it, you can't blame it, right? Like you've accepted that's your plan at that point. And right. Being comfortable you know, there's with nothing wrong with that. It's just a different approach. No, absolutely. Like when I took demons to LVO, I'm thinking it's a nine to ten narrow super major, depending on the shadow round. At their core, demons do have to hit reserve charges sometimes to win games. And I take redundancies like I take blood letters because they 3d6 pick the two highest for one CP. And that gives me more reliability in that. But there's there's a lot of reality too. If I fail this charge right now, I could lose the game. And that has to be something you're either blissfully ignorant to or you have to come to terms with. Yeah, exactly. It's always like for a key at the end of the day is a game of risk management. At its core, all it's about is risk management. And if you're the best chance you've got to win a game is that six and charge, take the charge. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Just be real with yourself when it fails that, you know, if you had come up with a better plan or you put yourself in a better position or you brought a different army, you wouldn't have been in that situation. And that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with making a six with needing a six inch charge to win a game. Playing one plenty of games off of six inch charges, but let's get a little more specific now. We often go deeper into player personalities and their play styles. Are you the kind of person who would bank a, a game on a six inch charge, or like would you try to make more elaborate plans and thresholds? Oh, for sure. Why wouldn't, you? That? Why wouldn't you? It's a dice game. The, the, the thing is, right, is the the best players are always trying to play to mitigate risks. And obviously, I'm doing the same. But I always find that the games that you make good players sweat the most in are the ones where you introduce that chaos. Um, I'm big on, yeah, you're going to roll average across your army, but your units aren't going to roll average, right? Like, I know what the damage output of a genius army is. I know how much I can kill on a turn. What I don't know is which of my 15 units is underperforming and which of them is, is overperforming, which means that I need to have backup plans. Now, what you can do with that information is that you can take situations where, like, sure, I know if I put three Landspeeder Storms to use my um, army from uh, Warhammer Fest, for example, I know if I put three Landspeeders roughly in the midfield, kind of behind ruins, kind of in the open from some angles, and a Harlequin army or an Eldar army moves out to shoot them, they're probably going to kill all of them if they commit. But I'll get to kill stuff back. And if they don't commit enough to kill them guaranteed, then there's a chance some of them will fail. And if there's a chance some of them will fail, there's a chance that I just have more assets and I get to punish you for under for undercommitting. And that, I'm always happy with embracing that little bit of chaos of just saying, hey, if one of your units underperforms and you don't have a backup plan, or because, you know, I have created enough pressure that if you overcommit to deal with my, like, pressure, then I'll get to remove that and then I get to do the same thing again because I'm playing, like, an MSU army. I've got a lot of little bits of stuff. And I can say, hey, eventually one of your units isn't going to perform, isn't going to perform for averagely, and you're going to get caught out by that. If you're just playing off the averages or like even a little bit above the average, one thing living on one wound can be the game in those situations, especially when you're playing as a top player who's really good at mitigating risk. Just saying, hey, eventually something fails. Every game, something fails. Um, and then that gives you the breakthrough and that gives you the opportunity you need. I'm very big on playing to that style of saying, hey, eventually, you, if you want to try and play this perfectly, eventually something's going to underflow because you're going to, you know, one unit will under low roll. You'll miss the charge. You'll something. I love playing that style. I love it. It's danger, danger close. And it's only a thing you do against the players that you know aren't going to make mistakes is that you just start saying, okay, these aren't mistakes, they're choices. Um, that's very much how I like to play. 
if it's not the right playstyle, I won't do that. I'm big on playstyle isn't real. You just, you know, you take the, you follow the correct line, whether it matches up with what you're comfortable with or not, is whether you actually think it's a playstyle. But I like playing that edge into the best players who don't like doing it because it stresses them out. Okay, so this is really interesting. Lots to unpack here. Uh, one clarifying <laughs> thing: you, I heard you say MSU. That just refers to multiple small units for those maybe not familiar with the forty k lingo. But anyways, so you said you basically are not a fan of advocating for the idea of play styles. Like there, there is just you know there's an aggressive approach, there's a defensive approach, and whether or not you like it is up to you. But one is correct in the situation, kind of objectively, and that's how you go about your decision making. When approaching games, yeah, I think so. I think that's a like it's it's slightly more nuanced than that. Right? Like, I, I'm very big on the idea that playstyle is just the thing is the patterns that you're comfortable with and the default approach you'll take. And I'm happy to say I have a default approach. Like, if I can in a game, I will take it safe, let you make mistakes, punish you for those mistakes. Right? That's the natural playstyle that leads you to having the 90 percent win rates because you don't lose the easy games. Right? That's how you set up layups for yourself. Which is great. just That's what you're making the plan consistent and easy and executing upon. Yeah, exactly. Mitigating risk. Yeah. When you get into the games against the people who are on the same level as yourself, which are ultimately the games that we're interested in talking about, when you get into that, there is some degree of correct ways to approach the game, right? Like there are some that are higher risk, some that are lower risk, and where you find your tolerance on that is a lot more what I would define as a play style, is what your level of risk tolerance is in the game of 4K. Are you willing to go from the six and charge, or are you going to wait for next turn where you can get it guaranteed? Now, that's more play style for me than do you play aggressively or do you play defensively? Because what those are are choices. That's just saying, this is the approach I think will win the game. Because if you're an aggressive player, if it's not the right play, you're just throwing. Like, that's not a, you're not going to do that, right? Like, no player goes into it like, I am the aggressive player, therefore I must always play aggressively. I just don't think that's a real thing. And I think it's a comfortable comfortable phrase people say is, yeah, but I have an aggressive play style, so I went aggressively and it backfired. And I'm like... Cool. Well, that means you didn't understand your win conditions in the game. That's not a play style. That's a mistake. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think of it more in like a person has their natural tendencies in life. So like I personally, like I've noticed over like a gajillion years I played, I'd like to view the game in terms of how can I make play it from a more defensive approach. And sometimes I'll come to the conclusion that no, I should just go put my foot on the gas and go run straight at him. And like you said, I can make that shift. I can make that choice to execute properly or at least think about the evaluative choice there but you know given and this is kind of what you said in your in your high level games where you you're imagining yourself playing against the, the top of the top of the finals of warhammer fest and it's it's ultimately the same decision making process just not on a well, not on a game-wide approach scale because you know there's a right or wrong way to play the game on a macro scale but aggression i think can be defined or you know defense on the opposite spectrum as exactly what you said, do I go for it right now and risk the six inch charge, or do I wait for turn three and take a more controlled approach? And rather than necessarily defining it as an aggressive approach or defensive approach, I think maybe more conservative versus risk. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that ties back into the whole thing of for a case of game of risk taking, right? Are you willing to take a risk or not? And I find that the players who are willing to take the risks usually win slightly more consistently, but often have the, like, you're more likely to win a tournament, but more likely to lose a tournament, is how I would describe it. Um, like High, high risk, high reward, as opposed to like yeah, a exactly. road approach. It's, like, if you're going to play middle of the road and never take a risk, you're just going to have the games that get away from you because you didn't take the risk, right? Yeah. Whereas you take the risk, sometimes it backfires. 
Well, in 40K today, especially at the competitive scale, so much of it is calculated, right? Like you can literally, it's not as bad as when to the last and stranglehold were for <laughs> secondaries, but you could, with certain factions, plan out how you're going to score 90 plus points with your army and execute on it very consistently. And if you're the person who can look at that and be like, all right, they're trying to score 90 points while doing circles in their deployment zone, then I need to figure out a way to beat them. And that in and of itself probably creates a lot of risk that you have to take and figure out how to navigate within your plans. Yeah, I spent a whole bunch of time playing Tyranids, which meant I had terrible secondaries once to the last of struggle all the went away. Um, your game plan very quickly becomes, I'm going to punch them in the mouth and hope they don't score anymore. And it works. Like it's not, it's not the most elegant strategy, but I think elegance is overrated as well. So. Right. I mean, you, you said you're, if you had to define yourself, you would say you like to create chaos in the games. And from my, the one game I played with you, it's your White Scars versus my, versus my Gene Circle, I would very much describe that game as chaotic. And GSC, <laughs> and by nature, does that. You play a lot of GSC. Um, and, you know, I can see that as a play style working for you. But when you play those chaotic armies, not just embrace it as like, I'm going to create a little element of chaos within these games. How do you actually hit your layups? You know, the because you're you're taking all this risk in every single battle, and your your whole premise is you win big, you lose big, kind of with risky plays. But, um, like you said, it's more like you lose a tournament that right. So, like, are you just saying the layups are going to come more difficulty sometimes? So, I think there's an aspect of when you play an army like cults, it can feel like the layups are a little harder. But I don't know. It's almost it's almost like a like I don't really. It feels unjust to talk a little bit about, you know, when I play the 3-2 and two and the 4-1 and one players, I don't expect to play a game, um, which feels disingenuous and a little rude almost. But I'm comfortable with my play that if I just play a safe game, I don't have to take that chaos. But if you give me an opening, I have enough knowledge of how my army's breakpoints work that I can apply the pressure in the right way to just end the game on turn one, turn two. And... I don't know, there are a few players who are known for this, right? Like, you'll see somebody like Nassim or Tom Ogden walking around the tournament after four or five minutes because they apply the pressure, right, break the game, and it's over in and it's over on turn two. And that's a lot of the way I try to play in, like, the layup games, whatever army I'm playing, is that at the caliber that I generally try to play the game, if you make an early mistake, it doesn't really matter that I'm playing a Chaos Army. I can punish that hard enough that the game is going to go very badly for you very quickly. Um and that's not you, really so. Were you talking about chaos in terms of like play style here, not yes, like in terms of like actual yeah. So I'm going to try and avoid using chaos a little bit. That's just a phrase because it does it is faction. Um, so applying like those lists, like the gene circles you mentioned, that are very, um, like the, your army is consistent. They're, your units they're sporadic. They can do all yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. When your opponent gives you an opportunity with an army like that, it's so easy to find the pressure points because you're playing a reserve army with very consistent damage and very high-scoring secondaries, and what that does is it forces your opponent to play the game a certain way. Your opponent can't sit on their laurels because they will lose the passive game because they're just going to score worse than you, so they have to make, they have to make opportunities. When my opponent makes opportunities, if they're not as good a player as I am, they're going to do it wrong in some way, or they're going to do it slightly suboptimally. And with an army like Gene Circle, or with an army like um, Iron Hands recently, where I'm very comfortable with it, I know what mistakes I'm looking for, the second you give me one of them, I will end the game. And it's it's kind of, like, it sucks to kind of be like, you know, but I don't plan on playing a five-turn game against most of my opponents. I plan on playing a two-turn game against most of my opponents, and then turn three, four, five is clean up. Because 
like I want the break between rounds. I want to be able to sit there and have you know an hour and forty five minutes extra on top of like all my opponents because I finish my game, I can go and have lunch, I can go and have a break, and then go and watch some of my teammates play, go and watch some of my competition play. I don't want to play a three hour slobber knocker every round. As much as I love playing forty k, it's not what I'm here for. I'm here for the two games at the end where I have to really test myself and. Like, that sucks to be like, yeah, because we play, we play open tournaments, right? Like, you play against whoever you're drawn against. Sometimes you're going to play the, the 12-year-old. Sometimes you're going to play the guy who's at their first event. And for my event as a whole, it's important that those games are quick because it gives me the best chance to be in a good mental state for the rest of the games, for the difficult ones, where my opponents have played difficult ones because, you know, they don't go for these plays. Gotcha. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. It makes to, perfect sense. Like, it's like a competitive advantage to really not play for like an hour and a half over the course of a round. A lot of times, uh, and I don't mean to derail it from, from like what your goals are here. A lot of times people go into the goals just trying to play eight games of Warhammer. They not get the opportunity to play tons of Warhammer. When you inter- interact with someone who's just like not speaking the same language as you as far as your 1% 40K and they're just like, I'm here to play some Warhammer. How does that interaction go? Yeah, so it's a lot of like the social side of things of the game, right? So it's it's a lot about communicating your goals with your opponent, being like, hey, I'm going to try and win this game as quick as I can. I'm happy to talk about it with you afterwards. Like, you don't do this like before you've crushed them. Like, you do this while you're crushing them. You're like, hey, I, I recognize this turn's going really badly for you. We can have a chat about it after the game, talk through some things, right? And you just try to set the expectations because as much as I get that they're there for their eight games, I'm not going to give them a bad game before, okay? Unless they come to the table looking for a bad game. Like, you know, I'm happy to chat and be sociable. We're going to talk through some stuff. I'm happy to say, like, your army's lovely and all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if our goals just aren't aligned, like, there's no amount of me staying at this table for three hours that's going to make our goals aligned. Um, yeah, I think that's really fair. It's it's very direct and, and kind of communicative skills. But honestly, it's I've had those games where, I, especially when I was younger, and, like, all I want to do is win the tournament. And, like, how do I get there? And I'd be playing against someone at that age, at that time, twice my age, and he was like, "I'm here because I like my orcs, and I'm here because I have a broken tier in the army." So <laughs> I'm here because I'd like your orcs to be back in their case. Right, literally, like that's a that can be an awkward interaction, especially you know with the social dynamics of that specific one. But in general, like being direct and being friendly about it, but like, hey man, like I play this game a lot. I am really competitive with it. I'm gonna try to win. Um, are you about that? And then they're like. Actually, this is my second tournament ever, and I just want to play some Warhammer. You know, treat it like that. I think that's a great takeaway. Yeah, exactly. It's okay to like, like you don't have to step, leave your foot on the gas. But I'm not leaving points on the table in one of these games. Unfortunately, it's just one of those things where, because of the way that competitive 4K is structured, the incentives aren't always the same for this for players. It's important to just be honest with your opponents and with yourself about that. If you're okay with sitting there for three hours and having a chat with a guy, grabbing a few drinks, like I'm happy to do that as well. If that's what I'm there for, especially if I've lost the game, like fine, whatever. We can we can have a three hour game where we chill, where we chill. But while I'm in contention, like it's just a, a quirk of the format, right? You it's have a to focus be, that you have. Yeah, exactly. So you you mentioned like also you you care strategically for your tournament performance that you you stomp these rounds through in like the first couple turns, clean up real class, and then you have an hour long break, extra forty five minute break, whatever, and. How do you design that into your plan? Like your opponent is there. And I'm not talking about the mismatch where you're playing someone who has no chance of beating you. I'm talking about someone who is at least gonna give it an honest shot. You know, they're gonna they're gonna try and they'll probably make mistakes and you'll have to capitalize. But that is an exercise in going through motions, if nothing else. Yeah, it 
it kind of can be sometimes. Uh, part of it is just having a, a really high familiarity with your list, right? Like, if you put an army in front of me as Iron Hands, I can kill an army that's in front of me. You put 2,000 points of Chaos Knights in the opening into my Iron Hands list, I'll kill 2,000 points of Chaos Knights on turn one. Um, maybe slightly exaggerating, like 1,500. Um, a lot of people are eager to do that because people make mistakes. The other version is that you can just, like, find that gap. I'm also generally just a fast player, so... I can usually like get through like even if we do end up playing three or four turns, my games are still pretty quick even under those circumstances. Um, it's not so much like a playing for it; it's just taking the opportunities you're given, right? Like, if my opponent gives me the turn one, the draw pod, I'll take it, right? Um, if my opponent doesn't give me it, then fine, that like whatever. I don't mind playing the three-hour game, right? Like if it comes to it and we we end up and we have a we play a three-hour and we play an honest game. Regardless of who you are, like that's fine. I, I understand that that's part of the that's part of the term experience. If I have a three hour game, I have a three hour game. I'm just always looking for the opportunity to have less if I can. Um, so, so, but will, it's not so will you like carry risk with that into your plans? Like, will you oftentimes in Warhammer you can find an opportunity to step on the gas early and just be done with it? You know, go table them the first couple turns. But it comes with a large amount of risk. Or like, this could just go sideways. What if the shooting phase flops? I could play a five-turn game where I may not be able to for sure determine the outcome, but I could play a five-turn game and try to figure it out. Which so, path do you take there? There's a little bit of tournament format quirk that comes into this as well. So at an event like... Um, we play a lot of our singles events in Scotland with the WC differential format, which is where you need to win by a certain amount of points in order to, you know, like basically you and your opponent's difference is what actually determines your score. So usually you need to win by 51 points to score 20 nil, which is the max in the format. And then you're incentivized to do that. So in those games, it's very easy to be like, no, I want the 20 because, you know, there's, you know, two or three, maybe going to be two or three undefeated in this tournament. I want to get the tiebreaker points. Um, or I want to, you know, if I do end up losing a game, I want my tiebreakers to be as high as possible. All these kind of things that kind of lean into it that encourage that aggressive play style. And that's probably been built into like the way I think about the game a little bit is that I'm even in singles play often thinking about differential because it's just ingrained into my thought patterns for 40k now. So in that kind of format, it's very incentivized. And then the other tournament format that I play quite frequently is the UKTC tournament format, which is a seven game super major, which has a top cut after after five rounds with four players. And what that means is if there's more than something like 128 players at the tournament, there's multiple, there's more than five, four undefeated players, which means that you're heavily incentivized to score high on tiebreakers for the battle point cut. Um, the cut often ends up being somewhere around, if you drop 15 battle points and there's more than 120 players at the tournament, you're probably not making top cut. Um, so you're all, you're heavily incentivized to play for the 95, 97 point wins. We saw that at LGT in 2022. We saw that last year at Manchester and Newcastle, Coven, uh, basically everything except like the true true top cut ones, like Coventry and LGT. And I play maybe one or two of those a quarter, which again heavily incentivized that play style. So a lot of the singles play I do is baked into looking for those and getting very proficient at going for those punishes. Which means that when I translate out of that into a normal win-loss draw format or something like Warhammer Fest that really doesn't care about it, I'm still looking for that because I just naturally do at this point. And I'm fairly comfortable taking calculated risks against players that I know probably don't have the capacity to punish if I downswing a little bit. If I downswing a lot, fine. It, the way that 40k is played in 9th edition, downswings like that just don't really happen if you're careful about it. And I'm not saying like I'm going to just like throw my whole army at you and be like, hey, you can kill this or not. But 
you know, I still play armies that have low interactivity. I'm still chasing angles with genes like alts and making sure I have redundancies. But it's about just taking that pressure and using it as much as a blunt force tool as possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, especially when you when you put it in terms of the fact that you learn to play through like WTC and UKTC formats, where it's like in WTC there is that differential and the amount that you beat your opponent very much matters versus having a very close game. So, not only do you have developed a skill to, you know, in WTC terms, attack people and go get twenty points at that zero twenty scale, it teaches you to be super mindful about where every dynamic of the scoreboard to know where the final total is going to lie. And that forethought is a very interesting way of doing what we call a points projection, essentially, where you're just trying to use game theory to figure out the ebbs and flows of the scoreboard. So being able to have such a close read on it, I'm sure, impacts your ability to turn up the aggression or the defense to the risk management level that you are comfortable with. It's it's almost like there's two different scales with which someone might attribute the word play style. Like Mark Perry like says he's a proactive control player. It's a whole episode going into whatever that means. But to you, you can define those two words in risk management scale and aggressive defense scale and just go up and down those two things, and that's your optimal line. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of times you can end up... So having come from like the WTC format, it's like anathema to think of a game where you have like a like a 99-97. It just doesn't feel like a win, right? Um, but when you play some of these formats like UKTC you can sometimes play a super controlled game where you just never let your opponent breathe, but you never stop them doing anything, right? Um, and it's a really, really weird style to play through where sometimes you'll just be like, yeah, my opponent's going to sit on eight primary and then they're going to score 40 on secondaries, but I'm going to score 45 on secondaries and I'm getting 12s. So sure, you're going to score 95 points. Cool, I'm scoring 100. And you just literally hold your opponent at arm's length for the entire game, never letting them do anything while they score points. And it's like the ultimate no-risk version of a game. And it utterly sucks to play but it's always very impressive to pull off i had a few games like that at lgt with the gene circles where i played into like a melee eldar list i was like i have no reason to ever engage with this it can never cross the board at me so i'm gonna score 100 points what are you doing and he sits there and he scores 92 and he can never run at me and i was like cool that i, I won the game we, we played for like an hour because we just sat there it was like playing an old seventh edition where we just drew maelstrom guards each other because neither of us could walk into the middle um, yeah. And playing armies with good secondaries obviously lets you do that. I've definitely seen harder players do something similar. Um, and that's definitely like the complete opposite playstyle, right? Where you're just going like, I don't care about the differential. All I care about is my score here. But at the end of the day, it's still you know maximizing your score and, max and minimizing the chance to lose, whether that's by virtue of giving your opponent nothing to do or giving your opponent nothing to do anything with. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that in mind, I think we need to start moving our focus of the conversation to how you actually play these armies and execute this chaotic, um, not chaos, but chaotic play style. Um, let's let's transition over to the list you actually took to Warhammer Fest, and that'll wrap up part one. Then part two, everybody who hops on over to our Patreon, AOW40K.com, can get access to and is breaking down exactly how his Iron Hands list works, his matchups, his dissection of the GW terrain format, and the amazing Discord server. All right, Linus, let's have it. Cool. So yeah, my Iron Hands list uh, is very much foundationally based on sort of the early Iron Hands lists of um, like mid-9th edition, where we saw uh, a big focus on 
things like the Volkai Contender, which really came into a fourth edition. So it's uh, an Iron Hand Successors detachment, which means to say I get all of the Iron Hands traits, and then I also get to pick to the Cosmic traits, so I don't get the Feel No Pain and the um, Double Wizard Bracketing. Instead, I have Exploding Sixes to hit in melee, and one free reroll every time one of my units activates. I'm running a Primaris Tech Marine, who has target protocols, which gives it a bunch of free rerolls. A Primaris Lieutenant, who is the Indominus guy, so he actually like hits pretty hard, tanks pretty hard, who has rights of war for objective secured on all my core characters. One squad of infiltrators, a ten of Vanguard veterans with um, eight storm shields, and then um, ten lightning claws and a relic blade on the sergeant with jump backs. They traditionally combat squad. Then the same thing with ten scouts with sniper rifles and a missile launcher. They also combat squad. The relic contemptor dreadnought, as I mentioned, who gets the iron hands upgrade to become a character with nine wounds, which means it can't be targeted. Uh, and then it gets a war retreat as well, which gives it sixes to hit, generate additional attack. Still needs to roll to hit. I often see people miss that. Um, when they're evaluating his damage, but it almost always still hits anyway, but you can miss with that. It always sucks. Two land speeder tornadoes with multi-melters, just very cheap, efficient shooting output platforms. Two squads of devastators with a multi-melter and three grav cannons. Standard sergeant has like the grab bag from the kitchen sink uh, with the combi melt and thunderhammer. Uh, two desolation squads with the supercrack missiles, just very, very powerful unit that changes the way you play the game. Sergeants have the Venger launchers. One of them is upgraded to have a master crafted Venger launcher, which makes him damage three. Uh, a repulsor, which has guns. Uh, sorry, I'm not reading that. Uh, two land speeder storms and a drop pod. Um, and that's it. It ends up being 16 units, 18 once I combat squad. Definitely leaning towards that. Nothing really too valuable. It does have that repulsor in there that's a little bit of an anti-tank drop, but it has other purposes. Um, but yeah, mostly just lots of little things that can run about the board being a pain, scoring good points, and then damage output backed up to the maximum by the Iron Hands Super Doctrine, which is ignoring heavy penalties and ruling ones on all your heavy weapons armor-wide, uh, which means that all those things like the Landspeeder Tornadoes, the Landspeeder Storms, and the Repulsor that aren't core still get rural ones, which is just very, very efficient when those units are just not designed around having some 8th edition rules. Yeah, this this is it's so funny that we're kind of ending 8th edition and 9th edition with similar broken armies on the same index codex. But and absolutely none of the same units, which is my favorite bit. <laughs> that's true. It is entirely different units. It's an eclectic group over here. It's it's like very MSU, multiple small unit, but high firepower, high efficiency space marines. A lot of it is going to come down into how you use it, how you apply it, especially versus some of the more competitive lists out there. In part two, everybody, we're going to go through exactly how Ennis deploys this, plays it, moves it, shoots it, target prioritizes with it, what he looks for in his opponent's mistakes, how he navigates the Games Workshop US Open terrain format, and so much more. Stay tuned. You can join on AOW40K.com. If not, that's okay. We'll miss you. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll catch you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com